New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. I set up New Money Review in 2018 to cover the changes in money, which are getting faster, more chaotic and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Cryptocurrencies are incredibly volatile. Some are scams. But are others true stores of value? Could the technology behind cryptocurrencies, called blockchain, herald the biggest changes in accounting for five centuries and a new era of transparency in doing business? Payments get faster, cheaper and digital. But cash is still there and in demand, especially amongst criminals. And where does all this leave our traditional money, our dollars, pounds, euros and yen? Our podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each week, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, please like it and share it with your friends and network. Your recommendations make a big difference to us. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Rebecca Spang, who is a professor of history at the University of Indiana in the US. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Yes. Hi, I'm Rebecca Spang. I'm a professor of history at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, where I also direct the Liberal Arts and Management Program, which is a bridge between the College of Arts and Sciences and the School of Business. I've been here gosh, for about 15 years. And before that, I taught history at UCL. And my main area of research expertise is 18th, 19th century France, especially the French Revolution. I taught a book uh, called, I taught a book, I wrote a book called The Invention of the Restaurant. And then I wrote another one called Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution. Uh, Which is a very interesting read. I've been uh, reading it over the last couple of weeks, and I'd like to ask you about that in in a couple of minutes. But uh, first of all, Rebecca, I'd like to uh, pick up on an article you wrote in The Atlantic uh, last year. You you said the revolution is underway already. Far from making Americans crave stability, the coronavirus pandemic underscores how everything is up for grabs. A a year since you wrote that, do do you think we're living in revolutionary times? I think the times are still revolutionary in the sense that in the sense that uh, past institutions no longer necessarily feel legitimate or stable. Um, we certainly see that in the United States where would anybody say that the Congress really represents the population? Would anybody say that the Supreme Court is non-political? Would anybody agree and accept that um, corporations basically function the way they should? Um, There are all sorts of major institutions that nobody really believes in anymore. Um, And at the same time, we have no agreed framework for adjudicating between different ideas about what those institutions ought to be. So that, to me, is the hallmark, or one of the hallmarks, of a revolutionary period. What we are perhaps sadly lacking that some people at least had in 1789, 1790, 1791, 1792, 1793, was a sense that things could be made better, that 
that it was up to people to improve the world. And sadly, I think right now, one is much more likely to be overcome with pessimism than optimism for the future. But I do think that the uh, level of instability and uncertainty does make this a revolutionary moment. And I think you also wrote that uh, people living through a revolution may not always, uh, it may not always look or feel like a revolution to them at the time. And so it's possible that we could be living through maybe more historic times than yes, we might that's, imagine. that's very, very true. And certainly there are some revolutions. Uh, think about the Industrial Revolution. Nobody said, oh, the Industrial Revolution is starting now, right? It was identified in hindsight. So there are some kinds of revolutions that we never do um, identify while they're ongoing. One very important thing, actually, that happened in 1789 was that people used the vocabulary of revolution, and that perhaps was constitutive of a sense of hope, a sense of optimism that we don't have today, maybe it would actually be useful if we acknowledged the degree of uh, uncertainty and the possibilities that are open for us in the future, rather than thinking, oh, I can hardly wait for things to go back to normal. Mm. It's not Mm. obvious that they are going to go back to normal. So in your book, uh, Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution, as the book's name suggests, you focus on the material form of money. Why is the material form of money important? It's not exclusively the material form of money that I'm interested in, but I think it is important to take money away from the mathematical models and the abstractions by which it's studied often in economics. So by saying, look, this is material, and even something like a digital currency depends on the material infrastructure of semiconductors and wires. There's always some material element to it, and I think that helps to reground the history of money in the history of society, the history of politics, the history of everyday life. Yeah. Why was it said that the King of France before the revolution in 1789 had fabulous wealth, but very little money? What was that, that the particular feature of that period in France? Oh, well, the key thing um, about the 18th century in France is it's a time of enormous economic growth, um, a time that uh, many historians would say saw really a proliferation of consumer luxuries, but there's not a lot of money in circulation. So it's an economy that works overwhelmingly by credit. And credit is actually a perfectly valid way to grow an economy as long as there's some reason to assume that your future expectations are backed by a reasonable understanding of what's happened in the past. Credit is just a way of uh, doing uh, monetary transactions across four dimensions. So it introduces time into the normal three dimensions in which we make transactions. Yeah. So the so the, the 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 drawback of that kind of system is that if something like a revolution happens, uh, then debt suddenly become payable and the system can't cope. That's right. Exactly. Debt wouldn't have to become payable at the moment of a revolution, but the panic of the uncertainty of the future is that uh, lenders wanted to be paid right away. Uh, retailers would no longer accept credit. And so then there's really um, a liquidity crisis. Yeah. So the, the, the bills of exchange, the, the notes of credit that were passed around for most of the 18th century between you know, shopkeepers and uh, you know, 
tailors and 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 uh, you know bakers they they were no longer well they were people didn't accept them anymore once the revolution started they want they want to be paid in cash in some form of cash right and there isn't enough cash to go around um and the key thing is that you know bakers are sort of keeping uh, tallies and uh, tailors are working on you know pay me in 6 months pay me a year pay me in a year and a half because they know they're going to see the same people over and over again but revolutions dislocate all of that and people get anxious yeah um one of the things that struck me when reading your book was that when uh, the french revolution happened the leaders of the revolution didn't um renege on the debts of the old regime they wanted to carry on paying them and that seems very strange to a to somebody modern who's you know i'm i'm i've worked in finance i'm used to seeing countries default on their debts and particularly if there's a change of regime you'd expect them to default so what why did they do that in france yeah that's a really interesting point um there i think there are several reasons why they don't do it one is that there had been a series of pretty high profile defaults one associated with john law's system in the 1720s and then a smaller partial default um, associated with abbe terre um, in the early 1760s and what happens is that those defaults were understood as instances of uh, royal despotism, right? that you could do that if you were an unrepresentative, uh, despotic, tyrannical leader, but that that was not what a representative government ought to do. It's also the case that many of the members of the French National Assembly were themselves holders of the debt. So they don't want to default on it because then they don't get their own money back. Right. So, and, and in the French uh, system, you, you point out in your book that there is the, the, there's a long tradition of uh, of a distinction between what they called movable and immovable wealth. And immovable wealth was was, I guess, land and and um, principally land and property. Is that right? And it's and not, that that was it was it it is most obviously landed property, right? So when yeah. you try to think about something that's immovable. Land is yeah. immovable. Um, yeah. but what was interesting in the old regime is that something like a venal office, so if you purchase a judgeship, that becomes yeah. immovable property, even though it's not a physical thing you can see at all. Um, if you had what was called a perpetual prompt, a more or less a perpetual annuity that was going to be paid not just to you, but to your heirs and your heirs' heirs. That was immovable wealth. Uh, so there are all sorts of immovables that were not tangible. So, so when the when the leaders of the revolution embarked on this experiment with paper money, were very famous experiment with paper money. They wanted to have that paper money representing immovable wealth from the old system. That's right. That's right. So, uh, what the proponents of what is now called the French Revolution's paper money actually said they were doing wasn't to issue paper at all. What they had done was to nationalize properties that had once belonged chiefly to the Catholic Church, and we're going to use those to pay off some of the most important debts that had been inherited from the old regime. Um, but, of course, it's difficult to pay somebody off in half a cathedral or yeah. five acres once belonging to a monastery. Like, not everybody wants a half a cathedral. So the idea was that there would be pieces of paper that represented the value of half a cathedral or, you know, an outbuilding in a monastery. 
and you could pay people off with those. Um, they didn't represent, there was an argument made in 1790 that they ought to represent specific parts of cathedral set. And so they really would have been like sort of real estate trading cards. That doesn't happen. Instead, you get the abstraction that here is a piece of paper worth 500 leave, 500 pounds, backed up by a piece of land that's worth 500 pounds. So that was the way it was supposed to work. The pieces of paper would represent the value of the land. They would circulate until there was somebody who wanted to acquire some of this nationalized property. They would then pay for the nationalized property with the piece of paper. The um, France would then cede the piece of property to the person. France would no longer have the property. The person would no longer have the paper. Everything would be quit. Nothing would have been created. Right. So th this this paper money experiment in France, the assignats as they were called, um, you know, it was is, is a very famous uh, episode in economic and monetary history. It, it seems like a quite a sensible idea. This idea of securitizing the debt with uh, with nationalized assets. Um, so what went wrong? All sorts of things went wrong. Um, <laughs> Uh, so among the things that go wrong is that uh, calculating the value of the land um, was done on the basis of selling the land at auction. But we all know what happens at an auction. Um, prices get bid up. So it turned out that maybe you'd issued, uh, say, a thousand leave against a piece of property. But then the piece of property sells at auction for 1300 Well, that means you can issue... 300 more leave. So the value of what it's being backed by um, is constantly changing. So that's a problem at the sort of meta scale. In terms of the actual day-to-day -day practice of it, because the assignats were introduced with the idea that these would mainly be used to buy pieces of land, they're originally introduced only in quite large denominations. So 500, 1,000, 200 was originally the smallest denomination. You know, this is at a time when you could get a really great dinner in Paris's finest restaurant for maybe two and a half leave. So basically, you know, with the smallest bill going, you could buy dinner at um, the Grand Vefour for yourself and 95 of your best friends. And you're just not going to do that, right? It's just not a practical denomination to have in circulation. And it wouldn't have mattered if everything that had been in circulation had remained in circulation. But the problem is that there's this enormous liquidity crisis because people panic and they won't accept credit. So there's both a shortage of money in circulation and there's, quote unquote, land in circulation in only very big denominations. And presumably the, the gold and silver that had been used uh, in the money system also started to disappear and um, was right. either being there exported been, or, or hidden. There's never quite enough gold or silver, and it does very quickly disappear. Um, people, people who have it bury it. Um, yeah. People who don't have it are willing to accept it um, at a premium. So you also end up in a situation where the currency that's in circulation, the metal currency, and other things that are used as payment um, are not being accepted at equal value. Yeah. And so, and, uh, I, the, so the, the 
leaders of the revolution, at, the, at least at the outset, they decided that the, the market should set the price of money, including for the, for the paper money. They didn't try and dictate from above what the value of that currency should be, unlike in the, in the previous regime where they, I think the king set the nominal value of the, of the different French currency units. That's right. That's right. Um, so they embrace a very radical form of free trade. Right. Remember, coming out of old regime France, where um, the grain price had been set uh, to maintain bread at a fair price to make sure that people could get the staff of life. Um, it's a time where the most hated government agency are the so-called farmers general, who one of whose ta- chief tasks is to prohibit contraband, uh, tobacco, salt, calico, other goods. So um, there's a real embrace of a total free market ethos that is part of the idea of liberty. And they extend that even to freedom of money, which today um, does seem somewhat heretical. Heretical, except we're we're arguably seeing the same kind of experiment now with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, people making very... You know, very different types of private money, and they are circulating. So it's a maybe there's some similarities there. Yes, yes. No, I do think that the key um, distinction, or the key thing that we are now seeing with the um, move to cryptocurrencies, is a revival of arguments for a privately issued money that will um, move in value in comparison to the publicly issued one. Um, I don't think we're yet seeing a moment where Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are being widely used as of a means of exchange or mode of payment, but I think we may be getting there. Yeah. Uh, and, and just returning to the, the, the French experiment in uh, around the time of the revolution, um, so from this sort of extreme um, free market system that they introduced with the Assignat, what happened then? Was it the, the, the chaos that this unleashed that, that, that forced the government in a few years to try and um, you know, fix the price of money again and, and reintroduce some discipline into the, and presumably allow for the supply of goods to circulate? Was yeah, that, so uh, what happens kind of the- in the short term is that some individuals, but especially uh, municipalities, uh, charitable societies, businesses, start issuing their own paper small change. And the way that's supposed to work is that if an assignat is backed by land, well, you've gotten your assignat for 200 livres, you lock it up in a safe, and then you can issue 200 pieces of paper, each good for one leave, right? And again, you've okay. added to the money supply, you've just facilitated its circulation. The problem is that there were something like well over 2,000 issuers of this local small change. And so every time somebody encountered a new design, they had to ask, well, do I think there really is a um, patriotic society of this and this a place that has really issued this and it's valid? So it really increased the information costs of any transaction to have so many different things in circulation at once. And presumably this was a recipe for fraud as well. You know, there must have been yes. a lot of issuers who didn't have the assignat locked away in a safe that was backing their uh, small change. Uh, very much so, very much so. And when the national government does finally decide, oh, maybe that wasn't so helpful after all, it's after a very um, notorious case of fraud based in Paris where the issuers decamp 
um, to London. Yeah, uh, and then by uh, you know with the um, arrival of Napoleon uh, by and by the early 19th century, France goes back to a gold-backed uh, currency system, or I think gold and silver-backed. Now, what can we say with a kind of long? I mean, obviously, in the 20th and 21st centuries, we live in a uh, fiat currency era. But what what were the the longer-term lessons of the paper money experiment? Well. It's not paper money, it's land in a form that can circulate, but it was remembered as right. paper. And yeah. that's absolutely crucial, say, in the aftermath of the um, American Civil War, where the United States fought the war, paid for the war, won the war on the basis of the greenbacks. So yeah. the greenbacks were paper, they were fiat money, nobody said they were backed by anything. And the argument was made by um, many patriots in the 1860s and 1870s that the greenbacks should be left in circulation and would, in fact, be used to fund Reconstruction. Um, that didn't happen, in part because opponents of Reconstruction uh, used the example of the assignat to say, see, catastrophic things happen when there's paper money in circulation. We have to take it out of circulation immediately. Um, so Andrew Dixon White, who's a historian, who was the first president of Cornell University, um, testified in Congress against the continued circulation of the greenbacks. And he did that on the basis of what he called the French Revolutionary Paper Money Experiment, the Assignat. So it's just, and, and White's little pamphlet on that has been in print ever since. So it's become a frequently referred to example right up there, uh, really with hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany, when people want to say, see, see, we just can't let governments um, issue paper because disastrous things will happen. Hmm. Um, you know, given the current monetary instability we're seeing, you know, with the, with the, the amount of dollars or the amount of pounds being you know, massively increased by central banks uh, during the you know, post-COVID-19 period and the the, the, the latest boom in cryptocurrencies, do you think there's a chance we could ever go back to a system where uh, a, a government or an institution tries to issue money back by, by property or land? Gosh, um, I would tend to doubt that. I mean, it's an interesting thought, and I'm trying to think of an example. Um, there was that strange thing in Venezuela a couple of years ago where there was going to be a cryptocurrency somehow backed by, backed by oil. Oil, oil. oil. Yeah. yeah. Like, what was that about? Um, yeah. So that was a particularly strange one. Um, I'm thinking of a quote that I have another of your, your quotes, value and property have never been naturally given categories, but have always been historically produced. And that struck me because, I mean, it's particularly living in the UK, there's a kind of religious belief that property prices will always go up. It mm. was kind of reminiscent of what was what it was like in the US before the 2008 crisis. So that, that you're saying that this is, you know, we these are all mental models that we construct. They're not uh, given, you know, even gold, I suppose, is, uh, is, it's money because people believe it to be money and, and, you know, has served as money for a long time. But it's there's nothing intrinsically there that says it is. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, having lived in Britain for a while, um, I always found the phrase safe as houses um, quite amusing. Because um, yeah. <laughs> as you say, there is the British belief that property prices will just always go up. And, yes. Um, you know, it's true in some markets. It's not in others. Um, it's historically produced. There's change over time. Um, what I think we're seeing right now in terms of, as you said, the amount of 
um, dollars and pounds being pumped into the system and because of the COVID crisis. Uh, the people who are talking about this most enthusiastically, of course, are the proponents of so-called modern monetary theory, who yeah. say that, well, you know, governments can never go bankrupt because they make the money and they can always make more. Um, the problem, of course, is that we don't live in uh, purely national economies. And so that money sort of sloshes around the globe and has yeah. further side effects, which can be quite destabilizing. Yeah. Uh, just returning to France for a second, you, you mentioned that uh, earlier that uh, a lot of the people who were prominent in the revolution, um, you know, they didn't want to renege on the old regime's debts because they owned quite a lot of them, the, the, those people. I wanted to ask you more broadly, what happened to the distribution of wealth in France as a result of the revolution? Obviously, the, the, the king was removed and executed and a lot of aristocrats lost their heads. But what, you know, looking back from you know, 50 years later or 100 years later, was there a very big redistribution of ownership of land and of wealth in, 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 in broader terms? Or did it actually change less than we might imagine? Well, remember, the king's little brother comes back and is king in 1814. Uh, so yeah, there's not that big a change in the short term, at least in the um, or in the slightly longer term in the fortunes of the French royal family. And if it's the aristocrats who are famous for losing their heads, they are not numerically um, the most represented among those who are guillotined or who are victims, certainly of the civil war in the Vendée. Uh, lots and lots of ordinary French people also are victims of the revolution or of counter-revolutionary violence. So in terms of redistribution of property, the main thing that we see in the countryside with the selling off of the land that had once been held by the Catholic Church is that peasant landowners, those peasants who already owned land, own more land. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, it's not, it doesn't become distributed evenly by any uh, stripe of the imagination, but it does allow some peasant proprietors to become larger proprietors. And we certainly know that France until the 1930s is overwhelmingly a rural country. Mm. And did France go back to being a credit-based system of the type that we had seen before the revolution or did it, did it not? Now that's a really, really interesting question. Um, because what you start seeing um, at the end of the Assignat experiment and uh, then repeatedly at moments of political crisis is written into any kind of contract, um, a rent contract, a sales contract, will be language to the effect of and must be paid in gold and silver coins of a certain degree of fineness. And then this is the part I love, notwithstanding any monetary laws that any government in the future may make. So it, it is an effort to make money private and to say, I want my money like this, no matter what the law says is legal tender. Um, then there are a series of legal tender um, cases that go to court in the 1870s and 1880s, about time actually, the same time actually, as there's a whole interesting series of legal tender cases in the United States that establish that, uh, sorry, honey, the national government really does have the right to say what money is, and you can't demand payment in something else. You can accept payment in something else, but that's different from demanding it. Mm. 
And, and, and a final question, just returning to the theme which we started with, with the, the pandemic and where we are, you know, you know, how historic are the times we're living in? What, as a historian, what um, trends or things that you read about, you know, about what's going on in the world, what are you focusing on in particular to try and guide you as to what's going on? Oh, my. Um, well, of course, like anybody I know, I do keep looking at infection rates and wondering if we're ever going to get out of this. And I yeah. read the most terrifying story about the situation in Brazil. Um, and, you know, clearly things are terrible in India. So I have to watch that. And I, I don't see much cheer in that. Um, I I look at what's happening in, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, and I'm just sort of bemused and a little bit baffled. Um, obviously, there's been an enormous amount of buzz lately about NFTs. Um, I happen to teach a course on luxury. And so, you know, I'm reading about the Gucci relaunch. It certainly feels as if there's a lot of wealth sloshing around in some very strange networks and not getting to places where it's really, really needed. And that worries me very much. That seems to indicate that we're seeing really quite epic and perhaps dysfunctional levels of inequality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's somber thoughts, but uh, it, the money is becoming, as you mentioned, NFTs, these are becoming increasingly kind of abstract games that uh, people are playing, but the, the volumes of money involved are quite uh, mind-blowing if you look at the yeah. prices of some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, thank you very much for a very interesting chat. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and uh, look forward to following your work. Thank you. I enjoyed this very much as well. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website in the right column. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.